Hold for Norm. Hold, Hold for, for Norm. Norm. This is crazy that you're doing a thing on Murphy Brown. This is nuts. I always say that it's a shame that it's not on because, you know, John Stewart and John Oliver and all the other Johns do a great job, but there was nothing like, there would be nothing like uh, a scripted show today that really called out Trump and everything going on out there. It would be so powerful. It would make the Dan Quayle thing look like nothing. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Milberger. Hey, I'm Jesse Mullins. And this is the Murphy Brown Podcast. Welcome to 2018. Yay. Guess what, guys? We're every week now. Oh, no. We're out of previews, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. I always like saying that, previews. Yeah, well, because Murphy is now playing on Antenna TV. Almost every day. Yes. So we're very excited to be getting in your ear holes once a week. Or you can, or you can save them up and listen to them every day if you want. Yeah. I just listen, listen to them as they're happening. Yeah, yep. just because. Yep. Subscribe, we, rate, review. Indeed, and we know that on our last episode we had promised you a special bonus episode um, after FYI, and where we would be um, sharing some of the the thoughts we'd received over email. Um, however. Rather than just listening to us read some things, we got you one better. We have a full interview today. We have an interview with Norm Gunsenhauser, who was a writer on Murphy Brown seasons one and two, and then came back in seasons eight, nine, and ten. Uh, and he also wrote for Cheers and New Heart, and we had a really amazing discussion. We're so happy to bring it to you. Yes, we want to keep Norm forever. It was a delight, and we hope to have him back to talk about his own episodes. Yeah, and up. then we'll pepper in some of the things that Corby told us, you know, as as we, we go along. So also you should note that um, when Norm says his name, for some reason, a car went by. Right at that moment. Everything else is fine. <laughs> Sorry um, about that, Norm. Yes. So, uh, Norm Gunsenhauser, a writer for Murphy Brown. Here we go. Mystery guest, will you please sign in? My name is Norman Gunsenhauser. And I was on Murphy Brown for the first two seasons. So I was part of the original uh, Murphy Brown writing staff. And then I left a genius move on my part, moron that I am, and uh, came back. Uh, both my writing partner and I, Tom Seeley, came back in at the end of the eighth season, we stayed through the ninth, and then we folded up tent in the tenth season. So most of my career has been spent um, writing that show. And I miss it. <laughs> we miss it. We miss it as well. What is the story that got you involved in Murphy Brown? I know obviously you were in the original writing staff, but what's your sort of your origin story? We always find that fascinating. Um, Tom, because I had a writing partner, Tom Seeley, at that you know, Tom and I wrote together for 15 years, and um, we did a funny thing. We we couldn't get hired. We couldn't. Nobody would. Nobody knew we existed. So we wrote a spec uh, cheer script, and um, that would be in 1984-ish. And um, we sent it around town. Nobody. We had a couple of meetings, but nobody really bit, and because uh, we thought that would be the only way to really sort of show off our writing talents, which wasn't much at that time, but we didn't know that. Um, and so we wrote this uh, spec cheer script that I actually had an idea for, for the old show, Alice. And I don't know, you guys are oh, young. Alice. Yeah, I watched it in reruns. Mm -hmm, me too. <laughs> so uh, Alice was about this waitress, uh, this diner, and on uh, a group of the waitresses and their irascible boss. And uh, the idea was that um, Mel, the, the boss, yelled at the, uh, the waitresses for fraternizing with the customers. 
And then he's clearing uh, dishes at one of the booths and sees this lacy glove left over on the table. And he starts to fantasize who this woman might be. And I called it Glove at First Sight. Never wrote it, never did anything with it. But when Tom and I decided we were going to write a spec script, I said, what if we take this old idea and just adapt it to Cheers? So we did the exact same story where Diane finds a trench coat left over in the bar and starts fantasizing about who the owner is. It gives me goosebumps because it really was one of our best scripts. And when we finished writing it, we thought, isn't it funny? It's like a really good taxi episode. Um, So, But we went around town and nobody was biting. And all of a sudden we get a call out of the blue that Ed Weinberger, got our script that we had sent it to without any agents, without anything. Uh, Tom went to the library, found out where Ed was working. You would never be able to do this today. And we just sent it uh, unsolicited to Ed. And I don't know, I don't know if it was two weeks later or two months later, but we get a call from Ed's secretary, Sandy, and said Ed would like to see you guys. And at that point, he had just created the Cosby Show, so we thought maybe we'll get an episode of that. But we were excited. We went in. And he hired us on the spot. So we spent the next two years. Um, our very first product, uh, produced script was a pilot, which we, we didn't know how lucky we were because we wouldn't write another pilot that got produced for another 13 years. Um, but he put us to work for two years, freelancing for different shows, and, uh, and ultimately helped to get the Cheers script uh, sold to Cheers. And so we ended up selling and making our name on the spec script that we just wrote on a lark. And, uh, and we were off to the races. So from 84 to 86, we were writing nonstop as freelance writers on different shows. And, um, and then at some point, uh, our names got around town and, um, the Newhart show asked to interview us. And we ended up getting a job in the sixth and seventh season of Newhart. And, uh, and it was just a great learning experience. How to, uh, it's, to write a script is one thing. To be in a room with writers, especially seasoned writers, was a whole different ball of wax. And um, so we ended up spending two years on that show with David Merkin and Doug Wyman running the show. Dave Merkin would go on to write on the, on the uh, Simpsons. And all these writers were really good, and they all went on to do spectacular things. Um, but everybody was leaving in the second season of that, of that run. So we decided to leave, too, and thank God, because we ended up on a show called um, Empty Nest. Our, right, our agents had made us a deal on Empty Nest, and, uh, and we were ready to go on that show um, until we found out that one of the writers who was our equal on Newhart uh, was going to be basically elevated to almost our boss on Empty Nest. And we went in to talk to Whit and Thomas and said that, you know, we, we can't do this. Now, mind you, this is right after the writer's strike. So everybody was scurrying for jobs. And we had a job, and we started to poke the bear. And we said, if we don't get an equal credit, um, we can't take the job. Like, I don't know what got into us. but we. And they said, there's nothing we can do. We know now that his agent lied to us, blah, blah, blah. And so we walked out of a job that we had, Empty Nest. And we went straight to a payphone. Remember payphones? Uh, we went straight to a payphone and told our agents, we want to see this show, this show, and that Murphy Brown, and that, no, that Candace Bergen show. We didn't even know the name of it. And thank God, because uh, that week we ended up getting an interview with Diane and ended up getting hired on the show and changed our lives. It changed our lives not only career-wise, but writing-wise. We learned 
how to write a very different kind of situation comedy. And um, because you couldn't find a polar opposite to Newhart. Newhart was the traditional. It was great. I mean, we had a great time on it, and I think we brought a lot of good things to it. But it was a situation comedy in the traditional sense, the CBS traditional sense. And Murphy Brown was now three acts, writing long speeches, uh, syncopation in this, the, uh, t- the, the speech pattern of all the characters. Every character had their own voice, as you know. And it was just a whole different world that Diane um, introduced us to. Not only that, but she introduced us to, it was more like playwriting, where uh, you could do dual du- du- dialogue at once. We never even thought in terms of dual dialogue. And in the first season, we wrote a show called Soul Man. And, it's one of our favorites. Yeah, we love that uh, It was about um, Murphy trying to crash through the glass ceiling and join this elite uh, men's club. And uh, putting her friend and partner, Jim Dial, on the hot seat to try to get her in. Well, at the end, everybody else left the club, and they were left alone, as you remember, sitting at the bar singing. Well, Diane and Corby probably put in the singing part of it. Because we never even thought you could, what, we wrote like a five or six page scene about how great it is and blah, 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 and I hope you're happy slugger and probably all the things that Jim Dial said to her at that point. Um, and Diane did this beautiful thing, just, just having them share a moment at the bar singing whatever Motown song it was, which you probably know, but I don't remember. I think it's I'll Be There. Mm-hmm, I'm pretty sure it's yeah. I'll Be There. So, um, so that's another thing she introduced us to. I'd love to ask, especially for... For some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the industry as we may be, if you could explain what the process is having a writing partner and what that means, because not everyone is familiar with that yeah. as, a, as an item. Yeah, I mean, um, the great part of it was that I happened to match up to a guy that uh, it was like a marriage. It really is a marriage. Um, he made me better. I made him better. And we also had the opportunity to share our success together. We I was married um, at that time, and um, and yet the people at home don't really have any idea what you go through on a day-to-day basis on a staff, because there's a lot of pressure, a lot of time spent at work, and uh, so it was nice to be able to, especially that first job with Ed, we literally got the job. He gave us our own offices. The day before, we were unemployed. I was, I was actually getting a real estate license, and um, we were so happy, we we jumped on this red Naga hide uh, sofa that we had in our office. We were so happy. And then we jumped the same way in the elevator on the way down. So we, we were in this thing together and we were like brothers and we still are. I mean, you know, the, I don't really understand the process anymore either, but somehow we were able to walk for miles and talk for hours. And when we settled down at a desk, we were able to, start writing. Uh, sometimes Tom would be typing. We went from typewriter to computer, too. So we were we were just starting out with a computer. This computer scared me back then. Tom was a little bit more savvy when it came to that. But we would tra- take turns at the keyboard, and, um, uh, and somehow we would cobble together uh, the first draft of a script. Uh, most times on TV shows, I should back up, you do go to the computer or the typewriter with an outline. So we did have the story, and we had some jokes that were pitched around in the room because writing for television is a 
collaboration. Collaboration. Every time you see a name on the screen written by, it was really written by the seven, eight, or ten people in that room. The writer does have a chance to go off and write uh, a couple of drafts, but then it gets better once it goes around the room. So we had all that, but um, I do remember that at the beginning of our partnership, there was a lot of yelling, a lot of, you know, this and that, and, and, and we were, you know, there was a lot of pressure on us. And at some point, we, it got so heated when we were still with Ed. Tom decided to take first, the first act, and I decided to take the second act. We'd come together later in the day and, and patch it together. Well, I hated what he did, he hated what I did, and we ultimately ended up never doing that again and just came back and wrote over each other's shoulders. So, really, it, 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 was, it was a great thing, but, you know, there's nothing more boring or more mystifying than talk about writing because it is such a, um, a mystical thing that happens. You are conjuring up these words and these visions of what the scene looks like and um, I don't think there's any real way of explaining how this happens. You become almost like an antenna. I mean, you talk in terms of conjuring and visions, and that's very interesting. <laughs> it, and it is. It's you know, very similar to dreaming while you're awake. Oh, you know, you just... That's great. Things come to you that you didn't even know you knew about. <laughs> Edward Albee says that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you... Ch- and, and whatever, because I, I was a young dad at the time, I would, when I was write, write, uh, reading Dr. Seuss to the girls, Dr. Seuss would find its way into uh, a script. On Murphy, um, I forgot, I was going, oh, Funny's Girl, which was also done, mm-hmm. I think, in the first season. It was, yeah. Funny's Girl was only because Tom and I were reading the funny papers all the time. <laughs> and we just sort of came up with this idea, what if, you know, this, this cartoonist starts mocking her in public? And um, so we just took whatever we were going through at the time in our own lives and tried to stick it into these scripts. And then I think I see that a lot in the in the scripts when we're watching, especially rewatching with this eye in particular, mm-hmm. is it just one of the things that sets the show apart for me is that the stories feel very personal. They don't they're not cookie cutter. They're not there are very few tropes yeah. that are not fleshed out in a more interesting way for sure um, because the writers were bringing these very we i mean we laugh about the pony and how often diana's written about wanting a pony and now has a horse and that you just feel these very specific things yeah. that clearly come out of life the horse died though no, no, she doesn't have the horse no. anymore yeah and she has a funny story oh, no. are you ever going to get her on we're the show hoping to, yes. yes yeah we're, we're hoping, hoping to, to. We're, yeah she's because she has a funny story about chet the horse's name is chet and um, so I won't ruin it, but it's a great story. Anyway, I just wanted to share that that definitely stands out. You can see the specificity in the people. Yeah, you try to. I mean, look, Woody Allen made a, a career of it. You know, it's always the greatest way to do it is to just try to bring your own thing into these scripts to set you apart. And that was what was great about Diane. She didn't try to um, turn this into a solidified, unified voice. Um, she allowed all of us to grow in our own way. And... Um, and I, it was the greatest learning experience at the greatest time in, in our lives uh, to be able to just write like there was no tomorrow, to, to write 53, 57-page scripts, and then we'll cut it back later on. You know, to, to just write was just so uh, amazing. I, I wish I had been a better writer back then uh, because uh, I would have had probably uh, uh, more fun doing it, but it was so strange. That show was so different than anything that we were ever a part of because we had gone through um, 
some of the real sitcom sitcoms. You know, I remember when Tom, I don't remember which episode, but Tom and I went off to write Eldon. He and I were so confused. Now it seems so obvious, but, but back then we had no touchstone how to write this guy. Uh, it was a, a brilliant character. And we would walk on the beach in Santa Monica trying to figure out how to do this. I think we were really, really wrong at that point. You know, you learn. But um, but every character was so different. Um, and then, of course, you start to gravitate. Like on Newhart, we gravitated towards, towards George Otley. On Murphy, we gravitated towards Jim Dial. So um, for whatever reason, oh, I love Jim. Um, we just enjoyed writing the friendship between Murphy and Jim. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's on a personal, that's one of my favorite relationships on the show. Yeah. And one, one thing that, yeah, I love Jim so why, much. Why do you like them? I think because, and being raised in a, in a family that was primarily of that generation, it was very familiar to me. Um, Jim amuses me because of this, uh, this dichotomy he has between the, the, the journalist of days of yours and this very prim almost carriage that he has and the very soft underbelly and little weirdo inside. And it's just, it's so endearing to me. And the, we talk about those glimpses of when Jim lets loose or, yeah. or when he writes his novel and these things that are so, so endearing. And you feel like you get a glimpse inside someone. And I think that just makes yeah. him very special and reminds me of, of family. Yeah, it's, awesome. the, it's the contrast. I mean, I, one thing I particularly always loved about this show and I, I think I look for it in other things now that I don't get as much mm -hmm. is these platonic relationships yes. between men and women, yes. which is yes. very That's rare. That's a good point. And, mm -hmm. and, and even, you know, even when it is maybe there, eventually they get together or there's something that happens. But this doesn't happen in these two, particularly, you know, between and Frank, with Frank, yeah, Ugh. Frank and Jim and Murphy. Those are my favorites. And Eldon yeah. as well. Yeah. That um, it shouldn't be rare. Yeah. But for some reason, it is. And so to have that sort of beautiful relationship between, you know, these these two, all these couples that doesn't have a romantic interest mm -hmm. is, I think, what really makes it interesting for me. Well, and it spoiled us as consumers, especially for us growing yeah. up with this as one of our first favorite TV shows when we were kids is like we were given this as an example. We were given this and we were given C.J. Craig and all of the West Wing. We were given these relationships that were that told us that we could have that and then to watch them kind of disappear yeah. in our media as we got older, it's, it's confusing to us. So seeing that and being like, yes, it is there. It is possible. It has been done it's before possible. and it could be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, even the writing staff, you know, we still have a friendship today and, and it's all based on true friendship. There was never anything but that, you know, the shared experience of Murphy Brown. Yes. But it is absolutely, it is the, when Harry met Sally phenomenon, you don't have to, you can be friends with the opposite sex. And I think Jim also, though, was looking out for her. You know, she was a fragile figure at that time. She was in recovery. Uh, and at the same time, he I think, the way I look at it, he was fragile, too, because the industry was changing uh, around him. Uh, the earth was quaking under his feet. And, um, and it would be a while before it really changed. But he could see that suddenly he was, his boss was this young Harvard grad, and he's Jewish on top of all that. And uh, and then he's sharing the desk with this quirky Sherwood. I mean, he had to start seeing the tom-toms of change coming in the distance. So I think they were there for each other. Well, I'd love that you that you bring up the the spectrum that is miles to Jim, because 
Jim, this, you know, this grounded kind of father figure of the office, especially when we find out what he did for Murphy, getting her to rehab and so on. And then down to Miles, who is the future. And the fact that their their relationship is such a positive one and that Jim isn't constantly just batting down the young the young buck. Yeah, we, we've been noticing that as we've been going through it in order with a completely different eye as an adult, but also just more of a critical eye, is how quickly they become cohesive and um, nobody really looks down on each other, mm-hmm. that they, they really treat each other like equals. I mean, sure, Murphy is going to, you know, uh, get it uh, in miles about certain <laughs> things. But in the end, there's they're not talking down to each other they're mm-hmm. they're acting as equals and then when in the second season we wrote an episode called miles big adventure and they were looking out for him they were forcing him this this type a to go away go have a vacation you know you're a type a you need rest and he, they had to shoehorn him into the elevator to get him out and then of course because it's one of my favorite episodes um miles has his first journalistic experience you know covering this Air Force pilot taken over uh, the island of Tobago with this uh, this nuclear warhead, um, and 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 I just love that episode because, and I get goosebumps thinking about it because for the first time Miles was telling the story of this island that was completely vacated except for the sound of the birds, and the only reason I remember that speech I don't remember the speech I remember items from the speech because I remember where I was when I was writing it I. I was sitting at Jerry's Famous Deli in Woodland Hills, and I was sitting there trying to come, because I had just seen the um, 60 Minutes report on on uh, the, uh, what's it called? The, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the oh, nuclear Chernobyl. disaster in Russia. Uh, oh, Chernobyl. 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 And, um, and I remember lot. Mike Wallace, whoever it was, talking about the silence of the, of the city. And I used a little bit of that for that speech when Miles is talking about what he's witnessing in front of him. And, um, you know, that's, that's what Tom and I always try to do. And that's what, that's your dream is to find all the firsts that these characters are going through. And so we did a lot of firsts, uh, especially in that first season, uh, starting with off the job experience and off the job experience was simple. It was, what if Murphy gets suspended for the first time in her career by this little pitcher? And, um, and off to the races we went. And it turned out to be a really fun, you know, episode. It was very lightweight, and we would get into more complex storytelling later on. But for what it was, because uh, I, I don't even, I think, I think it was uh, uh, the first of the 15 Murphy Browns ever told. So it was early in the the life of the, the series. Yeah, we're coming up to it probably yeah. in a couple of weeks. Yay. Yeah. It's a, it's one of my favorites. Well, I think it's, a, I don't, I'm not sure. I understand what you mean when you say that it's, it's light, but, but also the, these early moments that are so formative to the characters that then pay off later in the, the personalities we come to know and love. I think one of the reasons why I like it is they're handled with a very light touch. Yeah. I never felt like anything is preaching to me or being like, by the way, learn this about this character right now. We, we learn a lot as opposed to an exposition dump about somebody in the way that they react to being put out of their element. And I, I think that happens a lot in this first season in very, very delicate ways that I, I enjoy. 
Yeah, Mm -hmm. because something that really took me back, for example, is I'm I'm watching a little bit of Ahead, and then I'll go back and watch with the more Mm -hmm. critical eyes. I watched Kyle yesterday. Leslie, what was his name? And it's Leslie Jordan. Leslie Jordan. (laughs) It's such a silly episode, Kyle, in in a way. But then at the end, I was taken aback because I had not seen it in so long that I forgot that there's that moment with Jim where he he brings some levity to it and about you know journalism and you know do you get involved with your subjects and Mm -hmm. um, where do you cross the line. Or, you know, where does the line stop, so to speak? And and that's what made Murphy Brown stand out to me, at mm-hmm. least, and I think to us as Journalistic well. Journalistic integrity. Yes, but mm-hmm. also that they're, they weren't all just lightweight stories, that there yeah. was substance to it. And and again, to what Jesse said, is I look for that in my entertainment a lot, and I unfortunately am disappointed, because mm-hmm. this was where I started. I mean, Diane was, and Corby. Corby, to me, was the uns... Un, what is it? Un, uns, unsung hero. Unsung hero. Um <laughs> Because she was amazing. She brought her own speech pattern into the show. Um, so Diane and Corby were such a great team. Um, you know, Corby was the linchpin between Diane and the writers. And um, um, what they did to flesh out these characters, these, you know, on all, all these other shows we work on, one person, and you would never know that it doesn't belong in his mouth. But on Murphy, you could never do that because everybody had their own style of, of talking. And and imagine this guy Kyle, who you never saw again on the series, was a fully fleshed out character. Yeah, and it's just amazing. Yeah, and we talk about that a lot in the and show. And you could say that about Buck Henry. You could say mm-hmm. that about yeah. We do. So. We talk a lot uh, about we talk about that a lot on the show. Uh, Lauren pointed out to me and now I can't not see or hear it that when you look on the page at some of these scripts, you can see who is speaking. You know, who is speaking based on how it's written. Um, we were just saying in the, um, yeah. when Jim comes in during the snowstorm and it's like statement, 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 hat comes off. It's just, it's so specific <laughs> in every way they, in every way they speak. And, and it's it, so clear. And then you meet Doris. No, Doris. And Doris and him yeah. have this sort of like mind melt thing. You're like, oh, they are perfect for each other because they speak yeah. the same language. She's everything I'd want for Jim. Yeah. 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 Oh, just, it's it's hard to believe it's been 30 years. Um, what, since the show? No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't feel like that way to us if we weren't even involved in it. <laughs> it's hard to believe. I know. But, you know, I remember hearing Alan Alder talk about this when he was talking about MASH. And he, I remember even before I broke in to the industry, he would say, you know, uh, you don't realize at that time that this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And that's exactly the same thing with Murphy. Is once-in-a-lifetime. And I can flash forward to the 10th season, which personally is my favorite because, you know, we ended up giving Murphy uh, breast cancer to see how this powerful woman would handle something she can't control for the first time in her life. And that was based on my mother having breast cancer at the time, thinking the show was going to go off the air in the ninth season. And, um, And Tom and I were walking the streets of L.A., and I remember saying to him, too bad the show's coming off there because how cool would it have been to give Murphy um, breast cancer and see how she handles it? Because um, I thought it would be a wonderful thing for the audience at home. Um, and then, I don't know if it was two weeks later or two months later, but Candace called us up. We were in my office at my house, and she said, if I decide to come back, would you guys come back? And I had this nervous lump in my throat, and I said, you know, there aren't that many stories left to tell on this show, but what we'd like to do, and then we the breast cancer thing. And she said, let's do it. Amazing. And I understand that Diane also had a health scare uh, story arc. So um, 
you know, together, we, we ended up really, um, maybe saving lives because I heard mammograms went through the roof after Murphy went through this. And, uh, and for, and speaking about Jim and, and Murphy, I think my favorite episode of all the episodes that Tom and I wrote was called Waiting to Inhale. And I know you're only doing the first season, but I'm jumping. Uh, and it was, no, please do. Please tell any story that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. You know, Murphy didn't want to quit work. She was hampered by nausea from chemotherapy and she wouldn't stop. And Jim got mad at her and said, why don't you just stop? Quit, you know, walk away, you know, stay home, basically. I don't want to, he's basically saying, I don't want to see you in this condition. And she got pissed off at him. And, um, and they had a falling out in that episode. And somebody mentioned that pot alleviates the, the nausea, but she is a recovering uh, addict and um, wouldn't do it. And then Jim and Tom wrote that scene. Jim scores some pot in the park and brings it to her at her house. And together they have uh, they share a joint. And we have this this I could actually cry just thinking about it. But they have this um, come to Jesus moment when he finally says how scary is of losing her and and using that the comedy of the joint and getting high to break the the treacle of the scene but it was really the closest that these two ever became and i don't think jim would have become like that without the the help of some uh weed uh because it's both funny and it's both touching it's it's one of the greatest scenes i've watched it recently it's a little slower than i remember but um, it's it's a powerful, powerful scene, and I do believe that if Seinfeld wasn't going off that year, we would have ended up with an Emmy for that show because it was just I don't know if you can do it any better than that. Yeah, that like that choked me up just thinking about that scene. I I forget about that, but it is I think it's the one of the things we talk about with this show is the the use of dramedy and the the way that we play against moments. And uh, Lauren has brought up. Uh, when she tells Jake about being pregnant and the fact that it's a scene that you're both laughing and crying in yeah, and, at the same time. Very few laughs in it, though. And it's not a funny scene. There's so much silence through most of that mm-hmm. scene, and it, it's so powerful still. And you're not going, oh, well, why are, you're not looking for the laughs because mm-hmm. you're, you're engrossed in what's happening. And you care about this character. Oh, wouldn't it be great if TV was like that still? Wouldn't it be great yeah, I know. Well, I tend to watch more dramedies. Me we too. talked about on yeah. the show because I—that's now again what I was uh, brought up on and what I'm looking for. And and I'm an Anglophile, so I watch a lot of British work, which tends to just be willing to go to those yeah. those darker places that you laugh out of familiarity rather than just slapstick. Which I love me some slapstick, but I, I think there's something about having the bravery to go to those real places and and find the levity within because you know, as actors, we're always taught that nobody connects with somebody who's who cries easily. Interesting. We, we don't connect with somebody who just wallows in something. So finding the humor in, in grief or in anger in, in those moments is what connects us as human. It's that fighting against those emotions. And I, I think that's just something that those pivotal scenes in the show do so well. And, and you touched on it. When it's a great fantasy to have, 
that kind of relationship. It's what Richard Curtis does so well in his movies. Wouldn't It's a great fantasy of having those four great friends that you can have dinners with, who will watch your back when it comes to relationships. Um, wouldn't it be great to have those relationships? And also, wouldn't it be great to be that open with those people? Because most of us aren't that open. So um, in that case, I always thought that that was the subtext of Murphy Brown, the fantasy of friendship. Yeah, I mean, those tends to be the shows that I gravitate towards is when there's a, a family that's created in sort of the work environment. Yeah. Is these people are not necessarily related to mm-hmm. each other, but they're like, they become like family to each other, and then they become like family mm-hmm. to you. And as New Yorkers, that's definitely something that I yes. think we all, the idea of a chosen family, of a friendsgiving, of, the, of those things that we, we create. And as adults, when you become an adult and you, you create your own world and who you surround yourself with, and I... Watching the things that celebrate that and not just meet cutes is is very attractive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know why. You know, with the, we're spending more time at work than ever. I don't know why there aren't more shows like this. You know, now they're snarky and, and shorter, um, so they don't. I feel like they don't get to have as much substance. It's all about the jokes. There's no character right. development. Yeah, I think our show was 28 minutes at that point, and that felt short. Uh, but now they're whatever 20, 21 minutes. Yeah, for me, it's it was it's about the characters and not just our main characters, um, but the guest stars, uh, yeah. Murphy's mother, mm-hmm. and and I'm a big fan of the Jerry Gold character, and, and yeah. even though he only came back, you know, once a season really for a while, and then obviously a big gap, uh, you you knew who those characters were, and you felt a connection to them, and you look forward to when they came back just as much as the main cast. I only mean Colleen Dewhurst. Oh, I mean, Colin. I don't think there could have been a better episode than. The episode where uh, Avery died, oh, and, oh, no. and and Murphy and his, her father came back together again to celebrate this woman, and also the fact that they're basically haunted by this woman for twenty four hours on a rainy or snowy night. It was masterful because you could cry again and laugh. Yeah, I live for the moment when Murphy crawls on her knees trying to watch her mom jam out in the. In the first season, as she's oh, singing in the living room, yeah, it's just, I forgot about that. Oh, Colleen Dewhurst, just the, the best. best. But those kinds of rich guest stars that, without having to even leave the few sets that we're used to seeing, just create the larger yeah. world. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's. Cool. Did you have any favorites that you liked writing for um, besides the main cast? Any guest stars? You know, I, that's actually a good question. I don't, I don't know. Aside from Yardley Smith on Miles' Big Adventure. That's a very good question. I don't know if we wrote for any guest stars that I can think of right off the bat. Interesting. I think we stuck with our group. Um, if Tom was here, he would probably correct me, but I really would have to think that. So I guess the answer is no. I think you might be right. I, I mm-hmm. can't think of one person that um, – I don't even think we wrote for Jerry Gold at that point. No. We ended up hiring Jay for our show that we were doing for the WB at that time. He was just phenomenal. Um, but that's a, an excellent question. Nothing, nobody sticks out. And uh, you had mentioned, uh, for example, pitching the idea for Funny's Girl. Did you find that the that you always wrote the ideas that you pitched, or was it more of a collective effort in the room? Um, I think we mostly, back then, we always liked to write the shows that we pitched. And Diane encouraged it. So uh, it's not like most of these shows now where you're given an episode and you hope to God you have the, the feelings inside to write it. Um, she always encouraged us to come up with shows that we loved. And so you'll see much different episodes that Russ Woody wrote than what 
Gunsenhauser and Seeley wrote or what Diane wrote or what Stephen Gary wrote. Um, um, I think Stephen Gary always came up with the more intellectual um, shows. I could be very wrong. Um, and Russ came up with the quirky yeah, episodes. I could see that. Like yeah, the Bickners. Yeah, are just wacky. Oh, so good. Yeah, Kyle, the Bickners. Um, um, hookers. He wrote the last year of gold episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, the hookers. Yeah, bad yeah. girls. Yeah. yeah, you can always like pick out That's Russ's <laughs> episodes. I'm very good friends with him. So, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's what I loved about everybody that they we talked about their, their own points of view. Uh, you know, generally speaking, you would think that if everybody came in with their own points of view, it would be a mess. But for some reason, Diane was able to uh, direct all these episodes. So it wasn't weird. It felt like the exact same show just told a different way, you know, and um, it's quite a, quite a miracle, really. The miracle is that the show ever got on the air. So thank God for the, the writer's strike certainly helped Diana, think, you know, get the show on the air that she wanted. Well, and then nobody wanted it to go. All it needed was that foot in the door. Yeah. And that's her, though. Yeah, and she wouldn't let the president of CBS go until she got Candace, uh, got Candace Bergen to star in that I show. I love that. Yeah, it's one of our favorite stories yeah. that we've told. Are there any favorite stories or storylines that either that you wrote or that someone else wrote hmm. that stick out to you? Um, I mean, we know that the breast cancer was very important to you, obviously. I mean, that really is at the top of the list. Um, um, the, sort of the cool things, there was one story where I don't remember who wrote it. I almost want to say Corby did, but I'm not sure about that. We had a an episode that we had to um, film before Christmas, and I think it was oh I know who wrote it Tom and I wrote it it was called uh, I Want My FYI, and I think that was the first season. Oh I yeah, think. yeah, I don't remember. My, second, season. second season, second season. Bialik, yeah. We had another mm-hmm. young actress in there who was not learning it and wasn't out doing it, and it was now about Wednesday. See, we read the script on Monday. Ooh. Do some work on it. Tuesday would be a run through. Wednesday, and and then we would rewrite it that night. Wednesday would be another run through. We would rewrite it that night. And by Thursday, it's camera blocking. So, and then we would film it on Friday. By Wednesday, this young girl could not grasp it, and we knew we were in trouble. So we ended up. We didn't do anything. Diane and Corby did. Fired this poor actress and. At a moment's notice, brought in Maya Bialik, and she learned everything like in one or two days, oh, and wow. filmed it on Friday night, and that was sort of the beginning. I think she had to blossom by then, but but she obviously went on to do pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was already a seasoned professional at that point. Yeah, I don't think she'd had blossomed, but she'd definitely yeah. been in beaches. Yeah, she'd oh beaches. Yeah, yeah. Oh, beaches. That's right. And then we also had young uh, Mark Paul Gossiner as another one of the uh, newscasters. He was so young. Yeah, he was a baby then. And just to clarify for our listeners who aren't as familiar with um, the week um, at the show as we are, mm-hmm. um, you just clarified that it, it would be rewritten that week by everyone, correct? Not just yourself. Right. You would mm-hmm. bring the finished script to the table and the seven writers would sit around and just go through and we would have fun just going around the table um changing things that weren't working maybe the actor didn't understand something and we would change or a joke wasn't funny uh anyway everybody would just make the script better most of the times on shows they become worse or they become sort of the same 
Um, this in this on this show, everything became better. Um, and then it got to the stage, and the actors took it up even another level to that. So um, it was it was really all around. This was just a well run show. And Diane was the greatest CEO you could work for because running a show is difficult. And she was able to keep all these balls in the air along with writing because many times showrunners oh don't write. Yeah. Um, she was able to write. Her shows were always spectacular. And um, and she was still able to play the network game and the studio game and, and contend with uh, seven naughty writers who, you know, were just a bunch of wise guys sitting around a table. I think that's a testament to, we talk about that it it's a rarity that the the rest of the world really gets to know the the icona is the the head writer or the creator the showrunner so on because they tend to sit back we don't know a lot of that we couldn't pick a lot of them out of a crowd but the the energy and the passion that that put diane into this role that made her so successful i mean it's it's the reason that she was a household name is a household name in many and i i think that's a testament she was never a staff writer yeah Oh, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Yeah. That's a, the other amazing thing. Usually you work your way up. And in this case, she was never a staff writer. Um, she was just made for this role. And when you saw her, you know, she came to the table in jeans. She didn't try to um, be anything more than she was. She was she's a girl from upstate New York, from Buffalo. And um, and it was just a and, and also, let's be honest, you know, in the first uh, whatever, whatever third or 14 we didn't even know what we had we knew we were writing the show we knew we were having fun but we didn't know if it was going to get any kind of attention and then once we got some attention from the museum of broadcasting to do a night of murphy brown that's when we knew oh we've got something good here so then it becomes a whole different thing that these people who started on the show not knowing what's going to happen with their careers if we're going to be out of a job in six episodes suddenly we were part of something big and exciting. Now, we were briefly talking before we started, um, mm. and like I said, I might have some of it recorded, but um, about Murphy Today, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what we were speaking of before? It, it's so easy to say that you can't do a Murphy Brown, you can't do a Murphy Brown reboot. It's just so easy to say it because everything has changed. But I think you can. I think, you know, Murphy, I think it could even be more powerful. I mean, uh, ageism aside, I think you put her in a situation, whether it's a Huffington Post type of uh, venue, um, with maybe Miles Silverberg, my, my fantasy is Miles Silverberg is now this big network or channel hotshot, and basically brings her back to whatever, it wouldn't be television, maybe it's the internet, whatever it might be, but I think you could have a really, really powerful thing, and, and you had, guys had mentioned, you know, Seeing her in bed uh, tweeting her ass off to the president of the United States and getting attention back from him. I mean, I think I mean, he would have would. really I feel like they'd have to show. take her phone away. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Dan Quayle would have crumbled oh beneath God. that. This would seem like nothing <laughs> compared to her going toe to toe with with Donald Trump. And if if uh, Time Magazine gave attention to her and Dan Quayle, imagine what. What these publications can do, uh, you would believe Murphy Brown was a real journalist who has to answer to nobody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the coverage with Dan, (laughs) the the coverage with Dan Quayle was 
crazy. Like, I got sick of it. Yeah. Literally can't even, yeah. like, think about it now. It makes me nauseous. Because it was just so much, and I... <laughs> I would just absorb all of it. Right. Until it made me. I, it and now we're much. oversaturated. He would yeah. be everything. So how, I was going to say Donald Trump would be even worse because he, in his mind, would actually believe that that Murphy Brown, as Dan Quayle did, ugh. that Murphy Brown is a real uh, journalist coming at him, coming after him. Absolutely would would do it. Absolutely, he would fall right into our trap. I'd love to see. I'd love to see Murphy respond to someone calling her fake news. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I would love that. I also love the idea in this in this special reboot headcanon that we are creating mm-hmm. that yes, let's create it together. Let's create let, let's look at the the implications of this because if Miles was running, let's say HuffPost or something like that, because he his finger was on the pulse of the of the nation, then he would be a little bit older but in the same kind of world that Murphy was oh, at the top of her show. Yeah, you'd have to have a younger character come in and play sort of yeah. the Miles. Or Murphy coming in and just being like, well, yeah. guess what I learned, little tyke. Now it's your turn. Uh, like, Murphy could be the Jim. And and let's not forget about Avery. Avery. Um, Avery. Kind of a news honcho, maybe polar opposite. I'm very, yeah, I'm very, I would be very interested at that the most, to see the kind of person that Avery yeah. became. Is Haley Joel Osment available? Oh, I, <laughs> I don't know. But he, was, he was a great, oh, was he a great actor, man. Cute little kid. He mm. was something else. Such a precious little bean. I actually worked with him on um, the Jeff Foxworthy show, and so Tom and I brought him over to this show as because we would have been saddled with a baby. And uh, so we decided to pump him up to whatever he was, six years old, seven years old, and uh, especially the tenth season when he didn't understand what um, when she was going through her lumpectomy. And we made that really a funny show about her. I think it was called Operation Murphy Brown. And then it's how her and her son, um, you know, uh, absorb the news and, and go through this horrible thing together. That one really hit me as a child. My my dad went through and, and went into remission of, of cancer when I was probably a preteen, I think I was about. Or maybe I was early high school. But I remember thinking about those episodes when that was happening and having a conversation with my own dad about this is what it feels like for me to hear this versus this, what it feels like, this is what it feels like for you to hear this. And it reminded me of that. And luckily I was old enough to remember it because it actually became a bit of a touchstone. Uh, You were talking about that mammograms went up after Murphy Brown and then it was, Mm -hmm. you know, not just something of entertainment, but a learning experience is that I recently had a scare. It was fine, but I was reciting all this information of questions that I was asking. How long will it take things like this, not realizing that it was all stuff from Murphy Brown subconsciously in my head. Interesting. Uh, of course, it's all changed now. You know, it's not it's a day. All different now. It, was, it was five minutes that mm-hmm. I found out. It, it's, it's insane. Um, but as a joke, I was looking for a screen cap of Murphy with the peas. I thought it would be funny. Oh. And so I, I watched that, that scene and I went, oh, I think all of the every everything that he was telling her were all the questions I was asking. Oh, interesting! But obviously, it's been so long that it's updated, and I realized it was stuck in my head, and I didn't even realize. Yeah. It. Oh yeah, I remember when we were first starting to um, muse about the subject about giving her uh, cancer. Um, we were so naive; we thought I can't believe we actually thought that, but we did think, well, maybe she will die. And until we sat with the doctors at UCLA, and we realized, no, no, as long as you're informed. And uh, you're diligent about this. Uh, it's a very, you know, treatable disease. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it turned into such a powerful. And look, my favorite movie is uh, Network. 
And I think we are dealing with this mm. force, this tool that is so powerful that if you can do it right, you can really, really uh, make a statement, a loud statement. I mean, certainly Trump has proven that. But on the fictional side of it, I think you can really make television much more powerful than it is right now. I always still feel like we're watching it from a proscenium. We're as if we're sitting back and watching a play when uh, my dream is to work on shows where you're involved. And you certainly had that with The West Wing. And, and a handful of others, MASH, uh, certainly Murphy, but um, there aren't too many. I, one of the things that we, we talk about pretty often in our episodes, and I know we talked to Corby about this as well, is that the opportunity you have when you have such a platform and, and, and the responsibility within that, if you, whether you choose to accept it or not, yeah. um, I believe we can all be Spider-Man. But <laughs> I think that <laughs> I'm a nerd. Uh, but you're wel- you are welcome. Isn't that... With well, actually, power comes so great responsibility. with great power comes great responsibility. Okay. But fun fact, that wasn't actually said by Uncle Ben. <laughs> Anywho, but the point I'm making is that I think that, uh, and we've brought this up with the in the in the first episode, making a comment about tampons, um, talking the joke about um, have a mite all sandwich, later having breast cancer. That Murphy took a lot of risks, especially within the the feminist lens, and talking about matter of fact experiences that women go through from an a from a place that lacked apology well, uh, making a joke about PMS because it's okay because that is what women go through right. and um and i think that having that that platform and that that megaphone to talk about things within a comedic setting that are affecting people right now because people are right. listening to that and i think that genre fiction whether it's just a sitcom or it's all the way into Lord of the Rings, you, you have the ability to have a universality to get people to think about it in a safe way. And so if you have that, you should use it. And to recognize people as human beings. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you laugh, you listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. That's nice. Hey, I had two uh, sisters. I've got three daughters. So uh, to work on a show uh, with a woman that was flawed. I mean, she didn't always make the right decisions. Uh, she didn't always know if she had the right answers. Uh, her father and Phil was one of my favorite relationships as well on the show. We sort of forget about Phil, but he was so important to that show um, and fun to write and the perfect actor to uh, play that role. Um, the show had it all. And um, why Tom and I left in the second season, I will have no idea, but but it was a big mistake. <laughs> Well, here's a better question. Why did you come back? Yes. You know why? Because after whatever that is, six years, we realized how lucky we had it. And to be honest, honest, we couldn't find a decent show to work on. We were basically old news. And uh, a friend of mine, Bill Diamond, was running the show. And he I remember sitting at the computer and he emailed me, would you consider coming back to the show? It was like somebody had just dropped manna from heaven and um and i don't think it took tom and i a second to say absolutely so really it was bill diamond who asked us if we'd come back and um and it was nice because you know we hired bill and the three guys actually that were two other guys that were running the show we had hired them on a show of ours several years earlier and when that show went down, we had picked up the phone and talked to Gary Donzig and Steve Peterman about hiring the one or three of these guys, and all three of them were hired. They ultimately went on to run the show, and then it came back to as as a job for us. 
And then we knew we knew we weren't going to leave this time. So uh, it, it was great. And, and it was nice, too, because and the other thing was I come back and I see that these characters haven't changed one iota from the time we left. And we thought this has got to change. We've got to do something to change these characters, because I think the actors were bored and I think Candace was bored. And so we ultimately slowly started to change them and then bringing on, um, what's her name, uh, Lily Tomlin in the ninth season, working with her. And then the tenth season where she really knew what she was doing in the three camera format, four camera format, uh, was a gift. Uh, what a wonderful woman she was. It still is, obviously. I just haven't seen her since then. And we'd love to have you on again if you'd like to at some point, maybe when we get to season two. Oh, that'd be great. I'm just, I, I, I just want to say that I was really, when Corby first told me about you guys, I was, I was floored. And I, I, I thought, oh, wow, you know, sometimes you feel like you work on a show and it disappears and that was it. And to find out that you smart, young, beautiful women oh, are, young. are doing this podcast on Murphy Brown, <laughs> I'm thinking, what? So um, I'm just so pleased that, you know, uh, because everybody on the staff was so nice and everybody really loved the show so much and we stayed friends that it's just so nice that you guys recognize it. And hopefully um, we can get more than season one on a DVD uh, Mm -hmm. because of what you're doing. That's our goal, honestly. That's our big goal. Yeah, we really hope that through the podcast that we can show whoever makes that decision Mm -hmm. that it's popular Mm because I know that the reason was that the first season didn't do so well, but Mm -hmm. we're in a whole new environment. Streaming is such a different culture than DVD. And binge culture is here and people, and especially like we said, the 90s are back. It's... It's the zeitgeist that you, that they need to just like get that out. They got the Wonder Years out. They can get us out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. If you can put my mother the car yes. <laughs> on the shelves, my God, please put Murphy Brown on. Um, so yeah, let's cross our fingers and hope for the best. Um, I always sort of looked at it as a time capsule, and I think eventually um, Murphy will be rediscovered somehow and um, and cherished because it. It, it's an amazing show, and you know Diane sort of um, sort of bit herself in the ass a little bit by doing something that was so timely because that's what made the show so special. But that's also why the show never did great in syndication, and and then in the DVD or streaming world. So um, hopefully that'll all change. No one could foretell Netflix. So thank you for inviting yeah. me. Thank you oh, thank so you. much for being yeah, here. I wish we had more time, but we'll have you on again. And- yeah, anytime. This is fun. It's a pleasure. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Norm. We had so much fun. We had so much fun. So much fun. <laughs> Please review us on iTunes. It helps the podcast get out there to more people. Mm-hmm. Please uh, subscribe so that um, it just pops right in so you can listen to it right away if you want. Um, check us out on all the social media. We got Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's Murphy Brown Pod, And our website is murphybrownpod.com. And uh, you should be listening to our playlist, hopefully. I mean, you can. You don't have to if you don't want to. But if you go on our our website, we have a link to the Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist. On Spotify. Exactly. The next song will be Baby Love because we're doing Baby Love. That's the name of the episode. Yep. Season 1, Episode 6, Baby Love. Coming at you in a week. Great. So we'll see you next week, guys. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Bye. Bye.